Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. In today's episode, I'm talking to the art historian Andrew Spira, an expert on Russian art with a deep interest in the role that art has played in the development of the Western world. Andrew has recently been writing about art and the emergence of the self. It's a fascinating subject and one that he explores in two recent books. The Invention of the Self, Personal Identity in the Age of Art, and Simulated Selves, The Undoing of Personal Identity in the Modern World. Both of these books are published by Bloomsbury. Andrew is also one of the eminent guides at Ace Cultural Tours. The other day I ventured up to his beautiful home in Angel to chat to him about art, about Ace and about one key year half a millennium ago. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let me begin by saying welcome Andrew Spira to Travels Through Time. We're here in Angel. I'm watching the bicycles go past outside the window in the middle of London. Art really has been at the centre of your life and career, hasn't it? Could you tell us a little bit about your academic background, your professional interests and the books that you've recently been publishing, please? Um, I've had quite a a chequered career, it it seems, in retrospect, and I've been involved in many different uh, aspects of the art world. Having studied art history at university, at the Courtauld Institute, I found myself slightly by accident getting involved in uh, Russian icons. I studied medieval art at the Courtauld, and when I left, the prospect of getting a job with medieval art was uh, pretty limited in those days. And... Uh, By good fortune, I'd made friends with the owner and uh, runner of a gallery of Russian icons, Dick Temple, who ran the, uh, and still does, run the Temple Gallery. And I remember him one day, it was on my birthday, in fact, telephoning me and asking me if I'd like to come and work in the gallery. So it's an absolute dream uh, come true. Later on, when I I taught students um, art history for many years at Christie's Education, the one thing I'd always say to them is, whatever you do, don't sit at home on your bed waiting for the phone to ring. Someone asking you if you'd like such and such a job. But that is, in fact, exactly what happened to me (laughs) against all the odds. And so I had a wonderful five years working for him in his gallery and that really inducted me into uh, Russian art which became a major passion of mine and still is a passion of mine uh, somewhat on uh, hibernation at the moment but looking forward to uh, an abundant spring at some point. Uh, After the Temple Gallery I was a curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum um, which stretched me in all kinds of other directions. There's not a huge amount of Russian art at the V&A, so I really went off in completely different directions. I worked in the metalwork department for many years and then at the British galleries, um, which expanded my horizons uh, inestimably. And one of the first projects there was to refurbish the gallery of pewter objects. I scarce knew what pewter was when I turned up at the V&A, but that soon changed. So I got very involved in the decorative arts, in particular of Europe at that time. And um, then after that I went to work at Christie's Education and um, I sometimes fear that I learned more than the students because there's nothing better than being immersed in students. If they come up with some idea of a research project or something like that, you just say, yes, of course, let's get to whatever they want to research, you, you're happy to research. Too. Yeah, it's a fabulous so, place to work. Maybe for our um, international listeners, you yeah. can explain what Christie's education is. Because yes. to someone here in London, it does have a strong and powerful meaning. Yes, uh, indeed. Christie's, yeah. education? Christie's education, well, Christie's um, is one of the uh, two great auction houses um, in- internationally with Sotheby's. And many, many years ago, the management decided that it was, that the resources that the auction house had, that is a marvellous works of art coming into the sale runs for a rel- relatively short period of time, were fantastic um, educational material. So they decided to bake, base a school uh, on, on this resource. And uh, the, the key rationale was to study uh, things in the original. Mm. Okay, and now these books, we've got a few of them um, quite close to where we're sitting at the moment, the invention of the self and its companion which came out in 2020. I know there's other ones as well. You've got uh, Malevich's Black Square, which is a very intriguing little book as well. 
Tell me about these books which you've been uh, producing over the past few years. Well, I've been very interested in the notion of uh, identity and selfhood and the spiritual dimension of, of culture altogether for, for many, many years. And so this idea actually was sown in, in seed form a long, long time ago, and it has been germinating um, over the years. I mean, the, the, the concept behind the books, it is it's two books. One is called The Invention of the Self and the other one's called Simulated Selves. They really started off as one book, but because they burst their banks, they became two. I think of them as a kind of double album, though they are independent books. And you can read them both in isolation, but originally they were one, one project. And really the, the notion is that personal identity, the I thought, that's me, is, is, is a social construction. Now that's an idea that's been out and about for quite a long time now, discussed theoretically and abstractly. But what these books really do is, is combine that notion of this constructedness of the self with material culture, with the, the history of visual and cultural conventions, and to really try to see how extremely closely connected the two are, to the extent that the self-sense is not just an autonomous abstraction, it is actually uh, generated by our environments, our material uh, environments, um, both architecturally, but also with regard to images, with regard to objects, with regard to behaviours and ultimately with regard to our mental environment as well. So for things like language, for instance, is part of, you could say, our environment. So that's the, so that's what the, the books are about. And it, they chart the emergence of a self-sense. I trace it back to the 12th century or, or, or thereabouts. So of course, there is a case for taking it much, much earlier to the origins of, of um, human civilization, in fact. Of course, there is some sense of a self at that point, but it doesn't really uh, crystallize into a continuous tradition, I argue, in these books until the 12th century or so. So in the 12th century, up to, to, to generalize somewhat, I, I would I, I suggest that the church monopolizes the sense of self into a collective mm. in this world and that the self-sense doesn't really come into its own until after death. That's the real life really begins after you die in heaven. This is all a great unfortunate uh, mistake, you could say, as far as the human being is, is concerned. So the self-sense is either dispersed into the community or uh, embryonic, you could say, or pre-embryonic at this time. And then from the 12th century onwards, we begin to see the development of cultural conventions that very subtly seem to engage with what we could consider a personal identity. And I trace that in great detail in relation to all manner of different cultural conventions mm. for image types, for types of furniture, types of architectural space, things of this mm. kind. Types of it's design. lavishly illustrated, the book. And I think actually later on in our conversation, we're going to loop back on ourselves and you can tell us a little bit more in specific about how the self is emerging at a particular time um, in history. So I'll leave that one hanging for the moment. So I've got a few more general questions mm. I wanted to ask you before we dive in um, quite close. And one just about the role of art in our society. Picasso once famously said, art washes from the soul the dust of everyday life, which is beautifully poetic. And I was wondering if you had any... Well, first of all, if you agree with that sense of art refreshing us, making us feel like kind of, um, or giving us a kind of greater sense of perspective, and also the shifting um, place of art in everyday life, perhaps over the past few generations, do you have a sense that we're becoming maybe more distanced from art as a as a cultural tradition or whether some people are getting close to it? Because we live in this incredibly visual age from Instagram to all the rest of it. But um, maybe a lot of our cultural reference points are actually melting away. Yeah, no, I think it's very shifting sense. And, and one of the manifestations of selfhood in uh, Western culture and thereafter global culture, I think, is the very concept of art. We take art for granted as a sort of mainstay of uh, human psychology and civilization. And certainly productivity is 
fundamentally human thing as many animals are creative in the sense that they create and make nests or or dams or whatever so creativity is very much part of our, our nature but the concept of art i would say is or is itself a kind of construction engaged with a sense of selfhood which we, we can come back to later and i think it has changed certainly very dramatically uh, of late. I think one of the key determinants in the history of art altogether is technology. And the developments in modern technology have really put enormous pressure on the convention of art, to the point at which it really does become um, questionable as to as to what it is altogether. I mean, certainly throughout the 20th century, we've seen new technologies, which people have questioned from the word go. I mean, photography in the 1840s, people said, is it art or mm -hmm. is it science? That was that was very debatable for a long time. And then, of course, film has added something very significant to the mix and then TV and then put the Internet and, and computer generated art. I think it, it is very fascinating to, to consider what the status of an object or piece of music or an image generated by by a computer what is the status of that thing as as regards art so if you feed into a sophisticated computer as is now happening a, a lot you know all of mozart's music and do a data analysis on it to the smallest possible degree to the extent that you know how many times a given note is used in relation to other notes, you can really build up such a vast quantity of information that you can auto-generate symphonies by Mozart, played with all the idiosyncratic uh, stylistic differences of various conductors and orchestras, so that we couldn't really tell the difference. Um, but so in, in what sense would such a thing be a work of art or painting uh, so perfectly simulating Michelangelo or any other artist? In, in what respect is that work of art? I think it is a, a meaningful a question um, and I think it's, it's, it's both troubling but also auspicious. It's troubling in the sense that it completely undercuts the creative experience that is at the root of artistic production. It focuses completely on the product, led probably by the commodification mm. of artistry altogether. So it's very product oriented. There's no, there's no creative experience behind that product and the purpose of art insofar is it has a purpose and that, that of course is completely up for grabs i would say is as an as a kind of medium to facilitate artistic or cultural experience whatever that might be whether you're the maker or the consumer of a work of art it's about experience and if the experience is is, is not there then it, it it raises i think questions about uh, the way we experience our lives and which experiences we consider to be valuable mm, all these things in connection with the um the cultivation of the self that you write about but also very much rooted in our 2023 conversation about ai and sure. so on are very very relevant aren't they because what sense of connection sense of meaning sense of self can you get out of something which is just sure created in a flash sure and often what we're going to talk about when we we talk about the particular works of art that we're going to get onto in a moment you know, the, the finished product is one thing. Yeah. But why it was created and how it was created and sure. who created it and what challenges they faced and often over a period of maybe a couple of years. That's just no, absolutely. meaningful. And the two, the, the reason the books were divided into two is that the, f the first book, broadly speaking, about the emergence of a, the self-sense and the second one, Simulated Self, is about the eclipsing of the self-sense by modern technology and by the standardization of commodities and of experiences altogether to the to the extent that the self-sense is somewhat homogenized, you could say. So in the Middle Ages, every single object was unique, even if an artist or craftsman tried to make a set of plates, every single one would be different. Mm. And so the, the experience of, 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 of the sort of uniqueness of everything was completely pervasive. I mean, there's one wonderful story that uh, I, I tell in one of the books about uh, Margaret Mead, a sociologist going to, I think it was Papua New Guinea or somewhere 
of that kind and showing this is the beginning of the 20th century and showing one of the inhabitants there two copies of the same book they didn't know what books were so they looked at the books with uh, curiosity but when he saw two books that were identical that completely threw him because he thought how can the same object be in two places at the same time he had no concept of the identical nature of mass-produced objects but we are so familiar with that and it has to some extent homogenized our experience and, this, it, and su such that the vibration of individuality is somewhat ignored you could say by that convention and I think it happens all the time and in the moment a computer estimates what our likes will be on the basis of our experience we are being treated as a, a, a kind of item or unit and and the real flame of our individuality is not burning in in that because we just are a statistic in a process do you see what i mean so the second part of the story and the modern part of the story is is the uh, is pressure put on the notion of personal identity in some ways that's that's very worrying uh, because it leads to all kinds of abuses as which we are seeing um, well, in ideologically in some political contexts, but also psychologically and culturally in our own context, I would say. Um, but it also offers a scope for a kind of awakening in that I think the, our identification with a self-sense is, as I mentioned before, constructed and offers often quite a fictitious and fantasized to the, in the sense that I, we, I don't think we, our, our consciousness is permanently identified with the individual. I think that is a construction. And if we, if, if we become too attached to our personal identity, then all kinds of mechanisms and fantasies are generated by it. So fear of death is, is the key one. The moment you become a self in your own estimation, then fear of the dissolution of self becomes the, is the first, is the second thought in a certain sense. So a sense of personal identity comes with fear and anxiety as well. And I think that's also very destructive. So I think this is an opportunity for us to review uh, what our experience of life is, to what ex extent uh, do we experience life as selves? It's a, it's a fascinating conversation. One more um, thing I want to ask mm. you about mm. at this point, though, is something that probably will interest our listeners as well, which is your connection with Ace Cultural Tours, because sure. they hear week after week me talking about Ace Cultural mm. Tours. Mm. And here in front of me now, I have one of the Ace Cultural Tour directors and I thought this is a good opportunity for me to ask you a little bit about your own personal connection with that company and the kind of tours that you take sure. um, people on. Well Ace is a terrific company it's, it's, it's got a, a, a creative vision um, about culture and travel and seeing things together seeing original works of art it has a very I think a, a fruitful approach to culture. It's not just a, to, to look at things and tick boxes. It's really to engage with the history of culture in, in thoughtful, creative ways. And I, I really enjoy that, that process. It's, it's, it's enjoyable to, to meet a very mixed bunch of people and to have interesting serious conversations about all of these ideas and, and issues and of course the material that we see sets the pace that's the that's the material you could say which we use as a medium of exchange in this way so i've i've taken tours uh, for ace to many different uh, places many in uh, in italy um, Parma, Mantua, Ferrara, uh, Bologna, to Puglia. Uh, next week, I'm taking them to see the Chateaus of the Loire Valley uh, in France, which is um, cruising on the Danube, stopping off at Budapest, Vienna. Uh, so there's a wide range of, of different itineraries. There's nothing quite like uh, seeing the places moving in the space, the historical spaces, even the distance between buildings gives you a sense of the reality of history and the power of history. Mm. So I, I, I do, I think it's a, a marvellous enterprise. And so this one that's imminent yeah. next week, uh, the Loire Valley, mm. you say, what mm. kind of things will people be looking at? I mean, you talked earlier on um, quite passionately about your idea that people should see the art, they should yeah. experience it at close quarters. 
Um, is there going to be any art on it, or is it more oh, the yes. architecture? No, no, there's, there's plenty of art. Mm. I will go to the art museums in, in Tours, for instance, and Angers, which have fabulous collections. Um, there's also the uh, epic cycle of apocalypse uh, tapestries. Um, at the castle in Angers, which is an absolute must and uh, is quite neglected. It's a series of about 90 vast tapestries on the subject of the Book of Revelation um, from the 14th century. And they should be better known, but they rarely aren't. So we'll, we'll spend a lot of time having a look at those and uh, just pick up the, the atmosphere of the towns and placing this history in context and hopefully drinking a little bit of <laughs> their local produce, oh, the Loire yeah, uh, vineyards, you know, it's it again like very you really historical. As you're, as you're down there, I mean, the one place I suppose which you obviously can't go at the moment um, for obvious reasons is Russia mm. because of the um, political yeah. situation. Would this be a dream for you one day to get back to Russia and in a different world when things are it different? It certainly yeah. would. It certainly would. It, it has got to happen. It, it really must happen. That this, this bridge I mean will be rebuilt. Yeah. Is this because you spoke um, right at the beginning how this was your starting point yeah. um, when you were in that gallery and you were looking at these mm. icons and all we hear from Russia today are kind of quite sad stories sure. of tyranny and, mm. and, that, and there's, but there's that great tradition there isn't there yeah no, it's, it's absolutely tragic what's what's happening now there's there's so much depth and breadth in Russian history and culture it's such a fascinating story and the best Russian art on and music is is up there with the art music of, of any other nation and this it's it's I think it's just a tragic tragic um, anomaly in a sense that's what's happening now. I mean there has been a dimension of autocracy in Russian history for many many years, so it has its own history. But the the spirit um, of, of the people and the, of the nature there is so powerful that and maybe culturally that could be one way of healing. But who knows? A long long way to go before we get anywhere. Unfortunately, there. yes. Um, but listen, we've talked about these ACE tours and the um, they're really tours across geography. But sure. I'm going to give you the opportunity for a tour through linear time instead yes. today, which um, hopefully you'll find interesting as well. I know you've got loads to say about this and there's so many different places we could go to. But I am going to um, put a few limitations mm. on your choice. So I would like you to choose a calendar year to take us back mm. to. And then we're going to go through that year in three different scenes, or we can look at objects or people. Um, so let me say to you, Andrew Spira, if you could travel back through time, which year would you like to visit? It's a wonderful um, question. And I, <laughs> while thinking about it, I came up with many different um, options because there's so many of them are revelatory, you know, about history in general. But I decided to go for 1500 in the end, slightly reluctantly. And I say reluctantly because I don't really like the decimalization of history. When people talk about 18th century painting, for instance, it's, it's mathematically tidy, but culturally it sort of means nothing because history is not divided up in a decimal way. Just give me a little bit of rationale for your thought process. If we were to head off to 1500, what's the lure? What brings us there? Well, it's the it's the it's a peak historical moment. I I know all, all history is is constructed from our perspective, and so it's very easy to divide it into phases and identify epic moments or influential moments. But I think it is a, it's a really important uh, turning point. I mean, broadly speaking, it is the height of the Renaissance period. There was one thing that I read when I was thinking about this beforehand, about the year 1500, mm. which there was a sense of foreboding, which, yeah. which accompanied this slightly weird year, halfway through a millennium. Yeah. Um, there was the time and time and a half or something, I don't know if you know all about yes, this. Yes, certainly. There was this, this sense that and end times have often been nigh, but it felt to many people at that point like they were living on the cusp of something sure. quite terrifying really. yeah just as many people did here before the year 2000 i think yeah. a lot of people were very disappointed when the lights didn't go out yeah. in all the 
technology didn't collapse it. So well, could you hope... talk about that for a bit? What yeah, well, is, that, no, that's absolutely is, right. What is the intellectual um, framework there? That... Well, in the, it, the, the book of Revelations does talk about, in the Bible, the last uh, book in the Bible, contentious inclusion from some people's point of view, but it really is a, a kind of vision um, by St. John, a vision of St. John of what's going to happen at the end of the world. And it's a prophetic book in the tradition of Old Testament prophecies. There'd been um, Ezekiel and Daniel were Old Testament prophets who also had visions of, of the future. And so this was very much in that tradition. And it was a vision of how things would pan out at the end of time with the second coming of Christ and the last judgment. And, and a, a thousand years is identified as um, a period of time during which or after which Satan would descend into the world and there'd be a struggle between good and evil and Christ would eventually prevail. But then down on, on planet Earth itself, people could see, uh, I mean, there's a particular episode, if we think about the Renaissance, uh, Florence is one place we particularly think of as being a centre of cultural energy, really. Mm. And there was this... Uh, I don't quite know how to characterise it, but a scandalous episode involving a friar who was executed in mm. 1498, which I think is relevant in a way to the cultural environment of the time. Do you know what I'm talking I about? Do, I do, I do. It's very started. relevant. Uh, it's very relevant because, yes, he was a Dominican friar who um, came to Florence in the 1480s and lived there in the 1490s. He was uh, at San Marco, uh, famous for the frescoes by Fra Angelico. And he was uh, very charismatic and over a period of time built up a huge number of followers. And he was uh, rarely picking out the abuses of the church and trumpeting them loudly and uh, combined uh, aligning the Pope, Alexander VI, to the Antichrist and the abuses of the papacy, the nepotism, um, the uh, purchasing religious offices for his favorites and things of this kind and and so it with in a most virulent way he was uh, challenging the papacy and the whole ecclesiastical um, establishment and uh, anticipating the end of the world he made several prophecies some of which uh, one might claim came true uh, like the invasion of Italy by uh, France in 1494 and the division of certain aspects of the Dominican order that he anticipated. So some of his prophecies can be matched to historical events, which of course just intensify people's fantasies about um, his message. So yes, he, he was uh, very powerful. And uh, when the Medici uh, rule was suspended uh, in uh, 1494. There was a republic over which he had terrific uh, influence and that just uh, fueled the flames even more. Um, he, as you say, was uh, burnt at the stake in uh, 1498, nominally for refusing to obey the Pope, which was um, an ultimate sin as a matter of principle, even, so, even though the Pope was himself corrupt, the very notion of challenging the Pope was considered to be heretical. Uh, one of the things he railed against was paganism and also uh, luxuriousness, uh, two, two things for which the Renaissance is much loved now, that is to say the development of the material culture, the splendour of, of the artistry and the craftsmanship, so beautiful works of art, and also the revival of interest in classical values, um, which to his mind was pagan. And so he thought this as a kind of satanic and idolatrous development. And he thought both luxurious objects should be destroyed and pagan imagery should be destroyed. And he organized so-called bonfires of the vanities when people would voluntarily bring their commodities to be destroyed, including Botticelli, who was much taken with Savonarola. And he is said to have brought some of his so-called pagan pictures to be burned. Uh, we don't know what they were, but if you think of the birth of Venus, one of the most famous Florentine paintings of the period in the Uffizi Gallery, and Primavera, and various other paintings by his, these are secular subjects from classical antiquity, they're exactly the sort of thing that uh, Savonarola hated, and had they not been in private hands, they would probably have been consigned to the flames. Mm -hmm. So it's marvellous that, that they uh, survived that mm -hmm. ordeal. Listen, I think we're going to go and have a look at sure. some of these uh, figures. I think you can tell us yourself if they were figures of genius. My, my feeling is that they probably were. 
But looking at the works themselves will tell us more about the age that they were living in. The notion of genius is a very interesting one because that becomes, begins to become a bit current at this time. Uh, the genius being the personal inspiration, you could say, of the artist. When artists begin to be invested with the power to imagine things and uh, Botticelli was one of these artists that was uh, clearly and Botticelli is where we're going to go yeah. to begin with where was he working who was he and um, if we were to look at one of his works in particular which one would we look at well there's so many to choose from he he was a Florentine um, artist and uh, he, so we could have imagined him being around very this much very so. very absolutely yeah, he witnessed all of the, all of this development uh, firsthand um, he's famous for the beauty and grace of his especially his female characters i think one i'd like just to refer to before alighting on one to look at in more detail is a picture of the adoration of the magi that he uh, painted in the 1470s in, in which many uh, members of the Medici family feature and this is an interesting picture because it's got many characters in it and almost all of them are focusing on the matter at hand which is the presence of Christ and the Virgin uh, but one of them is looking out very distinctly at the viewer and that character is said to be a self-portrait of Botticelli. And so his inclusion on, of himself in this picture is a sign of his recognition of his own status as being worthy company among the Medici patrons. But almost more importantly, in my view, is the fact that he's making eye contact with the viewer. Because one of the great developments of Renaissance art was, of course, the development of uh, pictorial space uh, brought about by uh, perspective, the development of perspective, which enabled artists to create realistic illusions of three-dimensional space in two dimensions. And Botticelli became a great uh, master of that. The, the implication of, of this innovation was that the viewer of the painting is in the same space as the event that is taking place in the painting. There's a kind of continuity of, of the viewer space into the picture, which means that the viewer could be present at what is taking place in a picture. In medieval art, it tends not to be like that because there's no continuity between pictorial space, insofar as it exists at all in medieval art, and the space of the viewer. This is uh, interesting with regard to this moment of eye contact with uh, the artist in this picture because it's all very well for the viewer to be able to walk into the, the, the space of the picture but when a figure in the picture makes eye contact with the viewer that means the viewer has to be in front of the painting for the painting to make sense. If there's nobody looking at the viewer in the picture there's the implication that there could be somebody looking at the painting. So space is, is not treated symbolically, and not, not least in, in this particular work and in many like it. But one other thing that I think is in, in significant about uh, Botticelli looking at the viewer is that the person who draws the viewer into the picture in the way that I described is the artist. It's not somebody else, it's the artist. And in many pictures of this time, when you get groups, big groups, sometimes the artist includes himself in the picture and it's the artist who's looking at the viewer. It happens in other paintings in Florence, another adoration of the Magi by Benozzo Gozzoli. He's the only person in the entire fresco, with many, many people, who's looking at the viewer. So the artist is assuming this role as a kind of archetype or agent of identification, you could say. So if we're in Botticelli's studio, I don't know what kind of studios they would have had at this time, and we were looking over one particular painting yeah. in 1500. Is there a particular one that's in Well, one mind? that was actually painted in 1500, and therefore is especially uh, pertinent uh, to this moment, is his so-called mystic nativity in the National Gallery in London. And it has an inscription on it mentioning the date. And it's very interesting because it's got, it's got some of these typical Renaissance signs like pictorial space and naturalistic modelling, but it is clearly influenced by Savonarola. So though it is a manifestation of Renaissance values in many respects, it also uh, has this sort of late medieval anxiety, you could say, about the divine 
plan of history. And the, the picture is ha, has an image of uh, the Virgin with Christ at its center with the three kings to the left and three shepherds on the right. Above the picture, we have a sort of coronet of angels holding olive branches and crowns. These signs can be linked quite specifically with texts in Savonarola's writing. So this is the interesting meaning of the painting, is that it has this prophetic dimension to it. And it really is part of a kind of armory of expectation that something cataclysmic is going to happen at this time. And a, Botticelli- a great sense of foreboding. A great sense of foreboding, but within this picture, Botticelli's really looking at the positive potential of this transformative uh, moment that any anyone who aligns themselves to uh, Christianity in the appropriate way will be safe. If I was to put you into practical mode for a moment, mm. what kind of painting is this? What what medium is it, and uh, what was it painted on? Is it a... well, it's oil on canvas, which mm. for Botticelli was quite unusual. He would pa- paint on on panel, uh, yeah. wooden panel, most of the time. So that is curious. Nobody quite knows why it was painted. I heard one, one yeah. interpretation that it was you could roll canvas up and hide it under the bed. Yes, well, that be. absolutely. No, there was there was a kind of um, militia out after his death, uh, after Savonarola's death. That there was a kind of militia out looking for um, collaborators, mm. and it was no fun to be uh, discovered. You know, the punishments were brutal. And, and sometimes fatal. So he had a reason to be concerned. And so that is one one theory, is that he, he may have needed to hide it. Mm. Is it a large? Not, not particularly canvas? large. Um, not, 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 it's not huge, gosh. What is the dimension of it? It doesn't it's matter. We don't sort have of to be poster exact. size. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know what anything. you mean by poster size, but I can't quantify that. I, yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's poster size. Yeah. Um, for sure, and it's in the National Gallery National today. Gallery, if people yeah. want to go and have in a London. look at it. Yeah. Hello, it's Peter here. If you've enjoyed hearing from Andrew and would like to explore these artistic themes for yourself, then why not join him on a holiday to Italy with our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours. Later in 2023, Andrew will be leading a group to the beautiful Heel of Italy to investigate centuries of art and architecture in Puglia, from Romanesque churches to the vernacular architecture of the famous Trulli with their conical roofs. Further north in November, Andrew will introduce a group to a feast for the soul and senses in the artistically and gastronomically rich cities of Bologna, Mantua and Parma. If you've been inspired by hearing about Botticelli and Perugino, Ace also have an autumn tour to the exquisite city of Florence, where both artists spent time and where many examples of their works can still be found today. Ace have a wealth of art tours, all led by subject experts like Andrew, and they recently won the British Travel Award for the best small arts and culture holidays company. From the Suffolk landscapes immortalised in paint by Constable in Gainsborough, to the pioneering works of the Bauhaus movement, visit the Ace website to see their full schedule at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Yeah. Okay, let's go and have a look at a different artist okay. and something which will cast new light on the year 1500. So many artists that we could drop in on, but you um, have picked who? I have picked um, a Perugino, okay. who came from Perugia. He was very, very well known in his day uh, and spent a lot of time in Florence uh, as well as Perugia and also in Rome. He painted a part of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, And so, yes, he was extremely well-known in his time. Today, he's probably as well-known for being the teacher of Raphael as for his own pictures, which is a bit unfair, I think, because... still not a bad... No, it's it's quite a good way to be be remembered, yes. I mean, the best of his paintings are really perfect manifestations of Renaissance values, I think. think Early Renaissance values. 
Mm. So which of his works are we going to look at? Well, I have chosen, well, because it's partly because it's painted in 1500, or the commission suggests it was painted in 1500, I've chosen a, a resurrection, um, which was commissioned for San Francesco in Prato, and it's now in the Vatican. Now, the reason I chose it is because the subject of the resurrection, I think, is a very interesting one at this period. The resurrection, in some ways, is the most important event in the life of Christ because it is the miraculous transcendence of conventional human destiny in a certain way. But remarkably, it until the Renaissance period, it was hardly ever represented in European art, um, which seems strange. And so one has to wonder why it wasn't represented and why it started being represented uh, at this period. One of the reasons why it wasn't represented is that it's not mentioned in the Gospels. Not, of course, it is mentioned, but it's not described. The actually, it's not narrated. I mean, in the Gospels, what actually happened. So there was no uh, precedent uh, for representing it. Also, nobody witnessed it. So again, there was no, it was not in human history as part of the human experience of it. Or can we also <laughs> imagine that it was almost too sacred an event to be distilled into art? It'd be quite a a bold um, artist who yes. would have that responsibility for fixing in the Christian mind. Yes, exactly. It would have been an act of imagination rather than a traditional act of a repeat of a, a traditional repetition of a sacred occurrence. It would have involved I'd like imagination. I'd journalism, but we're not quite there. Almost <laughs> journalism. But it wasn't witnessed, so there was no precedent. I think yeah. that was that was the key yeah. thing. It's because it would have been acted, would have used imagination. Yeah. It would have been too subjective. It's an interesting subject for various reasons. One is that the artist presumes to visualise the resurrection, which had not been visualised before. That means, again, the artist is assuming a special authority to see what is otherwise illegitimate to see. So the, 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 the artist, therefore, has a kind of higher status. Do you see what I mean? And that's something that they well, confer on the themselves. Or... Well, sort of, a sort of yeah. on the same level, yeah. but not, not as clergy, but they're the yeah. same cultural... Um, license yeah. to go into some place that ordinary people are not entitled to yeah. go into. So that is about the status of the artist, no longer just a, um, a craftsman, but becoming a prophet and defining yeah. themselves in this role and insisting on higher status, which many of them do quite explicitly. But that's interesting, that, that famous old phrase, a challenge to the authority of the church, yes. that seems the classic example of that. It, it is, but the church didn't object to it in the, the the subject in principle the orthodox church did because it was a westernization but the, but they didn't object to it in, in principle certain details came up for for grabs i mean one of the licenses that some artists took was to show some of the soldiers awake which wasn't said to have happened because of course the soldiers were guarding the tomb were asleep they didn't see it happening if they were awake they would have seen what had happened what they would have known what have happened would have happened and then there would have been a precedent for representing it but they were then nobody did see it so the soldiers weren't awake according to this the, that tradition and so to represent them as awake is again license another another uh, characteristic that was debated is actually one that is evident in this picture that um, that we're going to have a look at when christ is not literally emerging from the tomb with his foot on the side of the tomb, as in many early examples of the subject, but he's actually hovering above it. So it's almost like an ascension. So he's right, really raised up. It's, it's a kind of vision. It's not just a narration of what happened in an imaginary way, but it's a kind of vision of, of Christ transcending the tomb. Do you see what I mean by that? And so he, he appears almost like a, a visionary character here. One of the soldiers, incidentally, in this picture is also awake and seeing it. So again, you've got a, a bit of Renaissance license creeping in there. And also in, in the Middle Ages, people focused by tendency on the suffering of Christ. So when you engaged with the suffering of Christ, that was a, a completely different psyche. And so medieval devotees were encouraged to identify with Christ in his suffering, sometimes inducing suffering in themselves mm. through self-flagellation and things of this mm. kind, and certainly through penitence and, mm. and things of this kind. But in the Renaissance period, especially with artists, they are encouraged to celebrate the, their dignity 
Pico della Mirandola wrote a book called On the Dignity of Man. So the human dignity of man that is now being celebrated as a legitimate function, you could say, of, of human psychology is reflected in the image of the resurrection. Mm. So people can now identify with the kind of risen nature of Christ in themselves rather than the suffering of Christ in themselves. And that psychological shift, I think, is absolutely crucial to what we understand by the Renaissance. Well, there's a question I want to ask about the depiction of Christ at this point in art history. We're so familiar with this picture of Christ at this time. Is it anything that he would be able to change? Or you talk about this earlier tradition of copying, having to reproduce an ideal. Mm. Is he? Is that what he's still doing here? Or is there anything different about his Christ that strikes you when you look at that picture? It is, it's happening bit by bit. I mean, the figure here is is very classical. It's quite a macho torso in mm. a sense. So that that's something that is it's not unique to him, um, but it is very classical. He's in a position of contraposto, which I think is one of the conventions of uh, Renaissance physiognomy. That is to say, he's resting more on one leg than the other. It makes it gives it a sort of effeminacy, which is quite characteristic of him. But it also turns him into a real human being, unlike a sort of stock figure, uh, just presented to you as an image. So he is a real he is a real figure. And yes, no, I think there's a perhaps a, a, a macho quality, which is not very typical. Or he's, as I say, rather effeminate. So some become much more macho than this, Michelangelo characteristically, and, and later a Raphael as well. I mean, he's he's nodding towards Vitruvian proportions here. One of the ideals of beauty at this point was proportion. It's not a purely physiological response to something. It's the acknowledgement that it complies with mathematical principles. So, so the length of the body should be eight times the size of the head and things of this yeah. kind. So there's a kind of rational principle that under underpins the appreciation of beauty. Do you know of any um, instances where Christ makes eye contact? Or is that just a complete taboo? In... No, it's, it's very pertinent that you yeah. should, should raise it because it does take us onto our next image very directly. There are a number of images when he does make eye contact. They're usually cult images rather than images that see him in historical context. So the resurrection or any other scene from the life of Christ is, is storytelling in a certain sense. And one of the functions of art was storytelling at this time. But when you see a cult image of the face of Christ looking directly, frontally out at you, then you're in a different mode of engagement. The Salvatore Mundi or saviour of the world is, is often called where it's very frontal. And uh, there, there are historical backgrounds to these images. The most famous in the West is the Veil of Veronica. So on the way to Golgotha, when Christ was carrying the cross, Veronica, whose name means true image, Econ is image, Ferris is, is true. She hands a napkin or a towel to Christ and he wipes his face on it. And when he, she receives it back, it's miraculously impressed his face on the towel. And it's looking directly out at the viewer. It's often painted as a kind of cult image. So you do have this frontal gaze, uh, which is, is often not... Has, not a psychological relationship it's it is a cult image with a kind of magical power i was just gonna like, like, go kind on, of finish yeah. this up with a bit of your own writing you say okay. this is just a transitional stage of balance between the unnaturalistic objects of vision for instance spiritual phenomena like angels and halos and an increasingly naturalistic mode of vision was reached towards the end of the 15th century the brief moment of poise was captured perfectly in the work of perugino and the only work of Raphael. Yeah. Do you, do you approve of that prose? I it's do. It's your own. <laughs> it's your own. But this is this is this kind of hinge moment. We're yeah. seeing things beginning to tilt. We're obviously not there, but we're we're on the way. Maybe that's maybe how we should characterize. Sure. But let's go to the third because you're going to tell us where we are. Well, now we're travelling to uh, Munich to see a self-portrait by Albrecht Dürer, who was a Nuremberg painter and. Um, to some extent, a, a craftsman. He was had goldsmiths, and uh, he 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 is a, a northern European um, epitome of Renaissance values, in some ways, for many different reasons. And he's, he's such an interesting artist because he's involved in 
many of the shifts that take place. So for instance, in 1498, he produced a, a suite of prints on the Last Judgment. So he's, he's very on song with late 15th century anticipations of the end of the world and things of this kind. The age that we live in, which I've referenced a few times as being this kind of Instagram age where the self is just prominent, it's right there, it's in mm. your face. He seems to encapsulate this before anybody else, as far as I can really work out. And I know there's a few other self-portraits through the 1490s in particular yeah. that that might be seen as a bit of a run-up to this one, is that right? In, in a way, yes. Um, his very first self-portrait he painted when I think he was 14. And interestingly, it's a drawing uh, and it's from the side, it's a side view. Mm. Now, one of the interesting things about self-portraits altogether is that they have to be uh, done in mirrors. Mm. And on, uh, written on this uh, self-portrait, other words, I did this using a mirror. Um, it also situates him in this... This world of crafts, which is part of you know the very much so, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, but yeah, no, he's he, he's very super skilled, incredible quality of, of skill and dexterity come through. This one is dated fifteen hundred, so I think it has an apocalyptic dimension to it. Quietly, I think just the the noticing of the year itself is the apocalyptic dimension to it, and also the audacity of the portrait, because anyone seeing it then as now would immediately think he looks like Christ not only because of his locks and his beard and so on but because it's very frontal in the manner of one of these cult portraits the way he's holding his hand against his chest almost looked like he's about to bless. There's something particular about how his hand is isn't there almost which yeah. is quite a I suppose a bit of a trope in religious paintings and how Christ would hand his uh, hold his hand. Very much so Absolutely. It's placed over the heart, which suggests mm. a kind of devotion on the one hand, but it also looks like he's about to to bless us. Yeah. And also there's a lack of sentimentality in the picture. It's just pure eye contact. And so it brings together lots of these different qualities. First of all, it brings this notion that the viewer is necessitated by the eye contact. If, 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 if the portrait's a three-quarter portrait, you could tiptoe out of the room and the sitter wouldn't notice. Do you see what I mean? But with this picture, you cannot because he is, you, are, you are necessarily in relationship with him, which makes the experience a completely different one. Your, it means your identity is necessitated by the painting. Mm. So that, I think, makes it an absolutely extraordinary painting because he's just captured something about the spirit of the age so perfectly and so on cue that it's 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 really very remarkable a few things then to ask you about because he seems a bit of a dandy really when you look at him he um he's got this kind of long loose hair which is falling over his shoulders he seems to be dressed in some quite um fine and expensive um fur-trimmed garments, which again is a projection of power, isn't it? Very much so. And yes, um, I think he was quite, he was vain for sure. But if um, you, but, if you but no, no, let, let you. And he had, he had social status. He was, he was part of the um, civic community in, in Nuremberg and was a powerful figure. He was on the town council. Nuremberg was a, um, a, a free city in a sense, and so it was quite autonomous. And so there was a, a lot of uh, political power conferred on on elevated uh, citizens there. And so this idea of the tradesman, the skilled tradesman, almost, um, you know, he's beyond skilled, isn't he? He's in the very highest echelons of very talented artisans making something of themselves materially. Yes. And this is where, again, your idea of the self emerges. But I suppose the question which most intrigues me is whether, because there seems to be a real dangerous dimension to this portrait before, it's only a few years earlier that we have people being, uh, that our, our friend the friar was um, was burned in the squares of Florence for, you know, overstepping, you know, he'd gone too far. Mm. Here, this seems almost a little bit like John Lennon's bigger than Jesus moment. Do you know what I mean? This yes. is, and that comes with serious dangers attached, doesn't it? No, it it, cer it certainly does. I don't think he actually was in danger himself, but there is there's it. It's part of a whole shift of values towards self-aggrandizement, 
secular interests, accumulating too much wealth, getting interested in non-religious subjects, which Dura certainly did. He was very interested in so many things, in natural history, in weather, in mathematics, in geometry, things of this kind he was fascinated by. But he, was, I, he wasn't a heretical character, and he didn't put pressure on the establishment at a religious level. He was, he was quite compliant um, at that level. So I don't think um, he was in danger in that respect. Though, yes, he is absolutely a sign of the times. Mm. And is there anything in particular about the painting which suggests to you that this is a work of the northern renaissance rather than maybe the the florentine artists that we were yes that's most certainly and that's the um the extraordinary attention to detail adura did travel to italy twice and on one occasion he spent a week in bologna and specifically learned a perspective from some unnamed teacher um possibly a student of Piero della Francesca, but it's not clear. Um, so, and, and he certainly got some sort of mon- monumental stylistic trends from Italy, but they're all subjugated to a very northern uh, temperament. The, the, the key characteristic of which is this feverish attention to detail. Everything in Italy at this period ten- tends to be surrendered to a sort of transcendental ideal of beauty, a fullness. Everything is linked to this beautiful perfect idea uh, and but with with uh, northern european artists they tend to look through the telescope from the other end in a certain sense and magnify the details and bring intensity out of every single complex crack and fold and there's a little bit of that here it does have a kind of majesty about it which may have a a classical feeling to it but it's also the the attention to detail the ringlets in the hair the linearity of his fingers things like this he's just getting as much juice out of every detail as he possibly can and what about the color palette which seems much darker than the yes earlier yes it is it is quite somber in that sense and he, he's not always somber he does use he does use a, a, a bright color in some of his pictures but again, it doesn't, sometimes a, a Perugino painting will have a kind of glaze mm. of beauty over it in the proportions, the harmoniousness of, of, of the colours. I think the Northern Europeans might have found that a bit, a bit lifeless. They wanted Gothic intensity. So I think you can still feel the momentum of Gothic perhaps present here. Whereas in Italy, Gothic style never rarely was never embraced. I always feel that Italian artists were only reluctantly engaged in the Gothic because they really wanted to get back to the classical. So when the Renaissance comes, they think, oh, thank God, at last we can go where we want to. Whereas in Northern Europe, the Gothic rarely took, had proper roots. And there's a kind of Gothic intensity that survives in this picture. Mm. So just summarise this for us, this little journey that we've been on today. If we were to make a little make meaning of this little tour through the three studios, the three artists, the three works. We've gone from Botticelli to Perugino to Drura. Is there something that you can see? Because I know we're on this hinge moment, but are we just seeing the self emerge more clearly? I, I, I think the, the, set, the self and the, the accoutrements of the self are beginning to to manifest and in each one of the things that we've we've discussed from mirrors to perspective to eye contact or including the artist in the picture all of these things are tiny little devices that consolidate a sense of the individual both in the pictures but perhaps more importantly in front of the pictures because really when we create art we're just talking to ourselves as a society aren't we so we're creating devices that enable us to fantasize a sense of self through our cultural experiences and that's what all these tiny details are coming together to facilitate the, the development of this kind of idea and yeah, I, I, I personally, I think it's so interesting to find the tiny details because that's where it sort of happens. It's so easy to sort of generalize about it. But when you really notice it happening here and here and here and here and here and happening on and on and on, then it, it's a kind of vision in slow motion. And that, that's what we're seeing here, I think. The sanctity of the experience. I think that's also an important thing. And, and in, in, in a sense, the Renaissance begins a movement away from religiosity 
but it remains a sacred experience because it's a deeply true experience. So it may not be such a Christian experience, but it is a spiritual experience because it's psychologically so true and so profound. Mm. So that's, but of course the story then continues in extraordinary ways. Well, it's such a fascinating miniature arc for us to look at. I've got one last question to put to you before I let you go from 1500. If you could pick up a tangible memento from this year to have in this house, maybe, or something to remind you of 1500. I mean, there's lots of choice that you could have. Is there anything particularly you'd like to snatch and run with. I think a Dürer print, I think, would be very special. One thing I love about Dürer is that though though he's such an important character and a a grand and proud character, I don't think of him as an arrogant character at all. This picture of this self-portrait, some people might think that's a bit arrogant to paint yourself like that, but I don't think he was arrogant. I think this is about dignity, the dignity of humanity, you could say. One thing I really love about him is his attention to animals. You, I always feel that he slips in an animal if he possibly can. In some of his bigger pictures that have got a lot of detail and a lot of natural phenomena in them, there's always a mouse or a rabbit. That's a brilliant yeah. choice. Well, listen, Andrew Spire, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. I've learned so much. Thank you for coming on Travels Through Time. Not at all. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Andrew Spira. If you'd like to hear more from him directly, you can check out his upcoming tours on www.aceculturaltours.co.uk and you can find his books, The Invention of the Self, Personal Identity in the Age of Art and Simulated Selves, The Undoing of Personal Identity in the Modern World in all good bookshops. My thanks to Andrew for inviting me into his wonderful home. My thanks to you for listening. There's more on tttpodcast.com as ever. But for now, that's it. Goodbye.